I want to welcome you all to RUF. My name is Matt Howell. I'm the campus minister here. And uh, it really is our hope that you find uh, RUF to be a safe place to process the truth claims of the Bible regardless of where you find yourself spiritually, regardless if you consider yourself a Christian or if you don't consider yourself a Christian or uh, if you are more skeptical or you consider yourself spiritual. Wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, we really do hope that... that this community can be a safe place for you to explore the truth claims of the Bible in a non-threatening context. Uh, so with all that said, one of the things that we've been doing this semester at RUF and our Wednesday night large group meetings is that we have been exploring what the Bible has to say about relationships in general. And uh, tonight we are going to be looking at what the Bible says about sex in particular. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, uh, because you're probably expecting what I got whenever a Christian stood up in front of a room like this and talked about this, which was, which was basically moralism. Here are the rules. Here is how far you can go and you can't go any you know, farther. And here is a truckload of guilt for you to feel. But what I, want you to, what, what I want to say on the front end is that I'm not going to do any of that tonight. Uh, hopefully, we're going to do something a little bit more... Fruitful, And so tonight, I want to talk about primarily what sex is. And then next week, we're going to continue our conversation about sex to talk about uh, how it has been damaged from its original design. And so if you, if you have a sheet, we're going to look at, at two passages uh, um, and kind of use that as our launching pad to talk about this issue. And by the way, this isn't going to be sex ed either, so no awkward diagrams or pictures. Um, no putting condoms on bananas or anything like that. So, All right, so we're going to read, we're going to read these two passages, one out of Song of Songs. Old Testament book, and then one out of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. If you would, give your attention to um, the reading of God's Word tonight. Uh, this, this passage begins with a guy, as you'll see, and then it, and it transi- transitions into a female voice uh, halfway through. I've kind of partitioned those out so you can follow the, the flow there. This is, this is a, um, uh, a, a husband and, and, and his wife talking in this passage. The guy begins, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is like a, it is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon. By the gate of Bath-Rabim, your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And then the woman speaks. May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There 
there I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, and I have stored up for you, that I have stored up for you, my lover. And in this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that, our bo- that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who, has, who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sinned against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, uh, pray with me before we look at it together, okay? So let's pray. Uh, Father, I I know that um, by even bringing up the issue of sex, uh, it it is a very delicate and sensitive topic for some of us in this room. Uh, For some of us, that, that word... Um, has connotations of extreme guilt and extreme shame and and extreme uh, pain and wounds. Uh, For others of us, it's it's a word that that connotes a lot of mystery and a lot of um, uh, questions surrounding it. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us grace as we enter into this uh, discussion together. I I pray that you would uh, give us ears to hear and uh, soften our hearts so that we really would see what you have for us and your view on this um, really explosive and and loaded subject. Uh, So give us grace in these moments, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what does the Bible have to say about sex? Well, a lot. And so we're going to jump right in because there's a lot for us to look at. And and so I included the the outline there in your handout, so hopefully this will make it a little easier to follow along. I want to talk about five things tonight. Five. The value of sex, the power of sex, The message of sex, the context of sex, and then lastly, the story of sex. Okay, so those five things, the the value, the power, the message, the context, and the story. So let's begin with the value of sex. What what is uh, the value of sex? Well, there's a ton of confusion right now in our culture about how we are supposed to view this thing called sex. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? There's, there's a lot of confusion about this particular issue of how we're supposed to view and value it. For example, uh, Andy Warhol, who is uh, an artist, uh, said this, sex is the biggest nothing of all time. So on the one hand, you're hearing that, and then on the other hand, uh, Woody Allen, who's a filmmaker, said, I don't know what the question is, but sex is definitely the answer. <laughs> and so our, our, our culture is simultaneously communicating that sex is nothing and that sex is everything, which is confusing. 
But actually, um, it, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, confusion over this topic really isn't anything new because Paul, as he's writing this 1 Corinthians passage that we just read, he's interacting with, with views that are very similar to the views that we experience in our culture. And so I want to look at these two views as he kind of quotes them. You, you can kind of see in verse 13 in quotes, he, he kind of is, is uh, mirroring back to them this one position. It says this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And so he's quoting this popular view at the time that basically said sex is kind of just like any other appetite. It's just a biological function. And so when you're hungry, you eat. And when you're horny, you have sex. And that's, that's, that's the extent of it. It's, it's nothing more than just another biological function. And so I'm going to call this the sex-exploited view. But then he quotes this other view in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, uh, he, he reads this. It says, uh, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman. This is the other view. This is the sex-avoided uh, view. This is uh, sex is dirty and it's defiling, and let's not talk about it. it it's, you know, it's good for making babies and all, but... It's just kind of uh, dirty, so let's avoid it. And so what I want you to see is that in Paul's day, the first century A.D., confusion over sex uh, is very similar to the confusion that we experience here in our own culture. So let's go a little bit deeper into these two views. If you look at the sex-exploited view, this first view is basically what the culture at large is telling us. It's biological, it's uh, nothing really all that significant, and so have sex with whoever you want to have sex with because it's not that big of a deal. This is what kind of the modern view of what sexuality is. Peter Berkowitz uh, is a political scientist, and he wrote this really fascinating article uh, describing, kind of cataloging the way that college students have changed the language with which they've referred to sex. And so let me just read you a, um, a little snippet here. I think it's really fascinating. He says, Whereas in the 1960s and 70s, at the dawn of the sexual revolution, radical college students referred to one of their newfound freedoms as the now quaint-sounding making love, a euphemism that emancipated sex from marriage but preserved its link to romance. And in the 1980s, we referred to having sex, which severed the biological drive from the emotional attachment. Today, students adopt a mechanical metaphor, speaking of hooking up, like railroad cars and computer docking stations. (laughs) He wrote this in the year 2000, hence his reference to computer docking stations. But this is basically his point. He says, if you kind of look at the way we've even talked about this thing, we used to call it making love and then having sex, and now it's this mechanical metaphor of just hooking up. I mean, it's, it's like that Flight of the Concord song, Business Time, right? It's, it's, it's just this mechanical, biological necessity. It, it, it's, as, it's as mechanical as hooking up your iPod to, to the power outlet to charge it. It's this necessary but really insignificant function, non-emotional function. And this is basically um, the sex-exploited view. If you, if you go a little bit deeper into the sex-avoided view, this, this is the view that you probably picked up in church. Or this is the view that you probably think that most Christians have about the um, subject of sex, that sex is dirty and it's inappropriate to talk about, so let's just not talk about it. In fact, some of you are probably even uncomfortable with me talking about it here tonight. It's just that this, this is an awkward, 
dirty subject, and I would rather us not talk about it. It's sort of that particular view. And there's actually some historical reason why you would think that the church has this particular view. Uh, in the 12th century, there was this prominent theologian named Peter Abelard. Here's what he said. The Holy Spirit leaves the room when a married couple has sex, even if they do it without passion in order to make new virgins for the kingdom of heaven. That's a Christian saying that. The Holy Spirit leaves the room when a married couple has sex, even if they're doing it without any passion. In the 4th century, uh, St. Jerome, who is a theologian, said, anyone who, is a too, anyone who is too passionate a lover of his wife is an adulterer. And so you have modern progressives on the one hand saying sex should be exploited. And then you have sort of traditional conservative religious types saying sex should be avoided. So the question I want to pose at the beginning is, what is the Bible's view? Which one of these is the Bible's view? It's neither. It is neither. The Bible celebrates sex. It sees it as good. It does not want to, us to exploit it or to avoid it. It sees it as a good thing where it actually celebrates it. I mean, if you look back at that passage that we read at the beginning, Song of Songs chapter 7, this, this passage and this book says things that modernists would never say. Because sex is discussed in terms of uh, this intimate, emotional, connecting, binding thing. It's not just another biological function. And this book says things that religious, traditional types would never say. It is describing sexual body parts and sexual acts with each other. And it's in the Bible. It says these sorts of things that neither one of these views say. And so I think if you put this together, the Bible makes it actually pretty clear God wants you to have orgasms. God wants you to have orgasms. Does that make you cringe to hear that? He actually wants you to enjoy it. Now, I don't want to be crude. I'm not trying to be crude. But just think about this for a second. Why did God create us? Do you know how many nerve endings there are on your genitals? Why would God create us like that unless he wants you to enjoy it? I hope that we can have a frank and honest conversation about this because this is the reality. God, the Bible actually celebrates this thing. And if you're, if you're squirmy right now, then maybe that's because you're coming from this view of we need to avoid this. I don't like this. And yet the Bible is very upfront and explicit about this. Did you just read what we read together in the Bible? It is very upfront. And so my point is with all of this before we move on is that I know that most of you, all of you, want to have sex. And a lot of you feel guilty about it. A lot of you feel like my desires to have sex means that there is something wrong with me. I shouldn't want this thing. At least I shouldn't want it yet. And I want to free you from that guilt. The Bible actually celebrates this and says this is a good thing. God made this for you. This is a gift. And the hope is that one day you'll be able to enjoy it. That's all I want to say about that before moving on. It, it, it is not uh, just a physical appetite, and so we, sh we, we cannot exploit it. And yet it is not this dirty and shameful thing, and so we can't avoid it. We need to talk about it. So that's the general value of sex. But let's go a little bit deeper and talk about the power of sex, the power of sex. It's interesting, but Jewish rabbis would not let people read the book Song of Songs until they were 30 years old. 
<laughs> I mean, maybe you understand why now. It's because when you read it, it has this nuclear... It, they understand that sex has this nuclear power, which is really not that helpful to unmarried people who are trying to live a pure life, right? So it's, it's pretty... Um, it, it's, it talks about sex in pretty graphic and... Uh, explicit ways. Uh, there was this article on NPR um, that I that I uh, caught that was pretty interesting. It's called "Human Connection Starts with a Friendly Touch," and it's talking about what goes on in your brain chemically when when someone uh, gives you like a, just a friendly touch on the arm. And I just want to read you this. I thought this was insightful. It says, recent studies from England show the area of the brain they've pinpointed, they've pinpointed that becomes highly activated in response to friendly touch. It's a region called the orbital frontal cortex, located just above your eyes. It's the same area that responds to sweet tastes and pleasing smells. A soft touch on the arm makes the orbital frontal cortex light up just like those other rewarding stimuli. And so touch is a very rewarding stimulus, just like chocolate that you find in your cupboard at home. I don't know why you put chocolate in your cupboard, but anyway. Um, who has cupboards anymore anyway? It goes on. The surging of oxytocin makes you feel more trusted and connected, and the cascade of electrical impulses slows your heart and lowers your blood pressure, making you feel less stressed and more soothed. Remarkably, this complex surge of events in the brain and body are all initiated by a simple, supportive touch. Now, here's what you're thinking. Where is Matt going with this? Here's where this is going. If that's what's going on in you from a simple touch, what do you think happens when you start inserting genitalia into each other? A whole lot more. A whole lot more. And my basic point is this, is that sex is unbelievably powerful. It is like nuclear dynamite. And this is why in, in, um, uh, in that passage, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. And we're going to talk about what that means, sexual immorality, in just, a, in just a second. But you have to see his assumption is that you can't stand up to this. I mean, imagine like an 18-wheeler charging towards you and you standing in front of it saying, I'll be able to stop it. It's just going to obliterate you and crush you. And so basically, my point under this is that we have to respect the power of sex. We have to respect the power of it. This reminds me of um, this great documentary, Grizzly Man. Uh, hopefully some of y'all have seen this. Uh, it's a great, really insightful documentary. It's about this guy that um, leaves his home and goes to uh, Alaska, or maybe it's Canada, I can't remember, somewhere up there. And he lives in the wild, like with wild grizzly bears. Like these enormous carnivorous beasts. And he's like walking around with them, trying to like get close to them. And he's calling them sweet little pet names. It's really weird. But he's got his little video camera videotaping himself by himself doing this. And I don't have to ruin the movie for you for you to figure out how this thing ends. <laughs> is that one of these bears it just mauls him. And the, the point is, is that he, does not he did not respect the power of these animals. It's crazy to get that close to an animal thinking... I'm going to be okay. And it's the same reality for you, is that you are crazy, I think. If you, if you think that you're going to be okay by being alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend at 2 o'clock in the morning on a couch watching a movie, you're crazy. That's crazy. That's playing with dynamite. Or, or it's the same reality of, of 
you are crazy to be alone with your computer in a room by yourself with the door closed. That is crazy. You are not respecting the power of this thing. The power of sex is, is unbelievable. But, it, but it's not just powerful, it's progressively powerful. It's progressively powerful. I mean, uh, anytime a couple that I know uh, starts dating and I sit down and talk with them, I always give this illustration. So I've told this to several of you, but I'll reiterate it again. Imagine your relationship like it's a, like it's a train docked in the station uh, up on top of a hill. It's just sitting there in the station on the top of a hill. The moment that y'all kiss, the thing starts moving. The wheels slowly start moving. And the train, because it's so heavy and it's so clunky, it's slowly moving along. But because it's on a hill and it's going downhill, it's slowly picking up speed. And it's getting faster and faster and faster. And it gets to the point where the thing is going so fast and it's so heavy, you can't stop it, even if you want to. And usually what happens is that you can't stop. It actually derails and just crashes and there's a bunch of carnage everywhere. But this is basically why it's true. Talk to juniors and seniors who have experienced the carnage. It's for real. But this is why um, there are so many of you who are caught up in this pattern of, of like physically struggling with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're not able to stop. And the point is because you weren't made to. You were not made to stop. Do you know how frustrating it is to get the train moving and going full blast and then to try to hold on the brakes because you don't want it to go all the way? Do you know how frustrating that is? I mean, just to be frank with you, married couples don't do this. We don't lay on a couch and make out for three hours with our clothes on. We go and have sex with each other <laughs> because that is the point. That's, what, that's how your body was made. It's progressive. Sex is progressive. I mean, you, you like to think that your body functions like, uh, like an elevator, like an elevator. You get into the elevator and you say, okay, I don't want to go, I don't want to go all the way. I don't want to go all the way to the top. I just want to go up partway. So you hit four or five and you go up to four or five and you get off. And that's how you think your body functions. This is also why uh, you often ask this question of how far is too far? Like, which is the, which is the floor that I can get off on and it's, and it's okay? Which is a bad question because your body doesn't function like an elevator, it functions like an escalator. Where as soon as you get on it, you are going to the top. That is the destination. That's where this thing is heading. And so you, you can get up about halfway and try to get off and try to go back down the other way, but have you ever tried to do this with an, with an escalator going the other direction? <laughs> it just is very awkward and it requires a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of effort. But this is the point. If you think to yourself, I don't want to go all the way, I don't want, I don't want to go further down the road, then, then don't get on the escalator because that's where it's going. It's progressively powerful. My whole point with that is that you just have to respect the power of sex. And I think the reason why so many college students run into trouble in this particular area is because, because you don't. You think you can handle it. You think you can stand up to the big bear. And that's why you're getting slaughtered all over the place. Here's the third thing that I want to say, is uh, the message of sex. I want to look at the message of sex. When you have sex with someone, uh, you are communicating a message to them, not with your words, but with your body. Your body is actually communicating something to them. And what you are communicating is this. All of me is yours forever. That's what, that's what the message of sex is. 
All of me is yours forever. Here's where I get this from. This is loaded into that phrase, uh, one flesh, in verse um, 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I'll just read it. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. When it says uh, that you become one, uh, one body with her, this isn't referring to just having physical sex with each other, a, a physical union. This is actually referring um, to something so much bigger. Because if that's all it meant, if one body, one flesh only meant having sex, then verse 16 would read this way, or do you not know that he who has sex with a prostitute has sex with her? Which doesn't make sense. What this basically means is that when the Bible says that you are one with her, having one flesh with her, this is talking about uniting yourself to another human being in every way. This is a holistic uh, idea that, that when you are uniting yourself to that person, this is not just a physical thing, but this is an emotional, spiritual connection that's happening. That all of me, all that I am is uniting to all that is you. And we are saying with our bodies, I am yours forever. The Bible assumes that your body and your soul are, are intricately connected to each other. This is why when someone does violence to your body... It's not just a neutral thing, but they're also doing violence to your soul, where there is deep psychological and spiritual damage that is done. It's not just this neutral thing. If somebody takes advantage of your body, it's also affecting your soul because the Bible says these two things are connected. And so when you give yourself to someone, you're not just giving them your body. You're giving them everything, all that you are, this completely holistic promise that all that I am is yours. I think that this is so um, obvious, and we want to deny it. And if, if you remember that movie, um, Vanilla Sky, there's this, uh, you know, this Tom Cruise, and he's sort of this hot shot playboy guy who's promiscuous, and he has, is enjoying all this sort of casual sex with all these people. And um, he starts hooking up with Cameron, the Cameron Diaz character, and they're enjoying uh, this kind of uh, sexual friendship. And at one point, I think he tries to dump her and, and, and move on, and there's this really intense scene in the car where she confronts him. And so she's you know, driving all over the place, and she's you know, confronting him, and he's freaking out. And here's what she says. It's unbelievably poignant. But she says, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether, you, whether or not you do. When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether or not you do. That's unbelievably insightful because she's tapping into, this movie is tapping into this idea of the message of sex, that when you give yourself sexually to someone, all that you are is being promised. Whether or not you have any intention of doing that at all, that's what you are saying with your body. This is why when you have sex with someone and you watch them leave the room, you feel like you've just been lied to. Because they said one thing with their body and then they said another thing with their life. And you feel lied to. This is also why uh, when you get sexual with someone in a dating relationship, you inevitably start making these enormous emotional statements to each other. Very early on, you start saying that you love each other and I, I, I never want to leave you. I want to be with you forever. I want to marry you. You start saying these enormous emotional things when you've only known each other for just a few weeks. How do you explain that sort of emotional intensity 
It's because these things are connected. You cannot separate the emotional from the physical. The physical amps up and fuels the emotional. And when you kind of get that emotional high, that's what makes you want to be more physical and sexual with the person. And round and round we go. And this is also why uh, there are some couples um, who have given themselves to each other sexually and yet cannot break up. They can't break up because it, it, it feels like you are just riddled with too much guilt because you've made promises to each other that all of me is yours forever and you don't want to end that. And so what happens is that the fighting and the guilt just leads to y'all having sex to try to repair the relationship. Because when you have sex, you say, all of me is yours forever. But only that, that only causes more fighting and more guilt, which only causes y'all to want to have sex with each other again, which round and round we go in the cycle of just guilt and shame and despair, and it's terrible. But this is, this is the point. You have to see that there is just so much more that's going on with sex than just biology, than just the, the, the plumbing. There is something deeper that is actually going on. It is a uniting of your entire self, your body and your soul, to another person's body and soul. And that's the message of sex, that all of me is yours forever. And this kind of bleeds in nicely to the, to the fourth point, which is what is the context of sex? Where is this supposed to happen? Well, undoubtedly, uh, the, the biblical position is that this is supposed to happen in the safe context of marriage, in the context of marriage. If you look at verse 18, I'll show you where I get this. It says, flee from sexual immorality. There's that word. What in the world does that mean? Well, even though that, that is, that's two words in our English language, sexual immorality, in the original Greek, the original language with which the New Testament was written, that's actually only one word, and it's the word porneia, which is where we get our modern word pornography from. And we just translate porneia as sexual immorality, which is really, I don't know if there's a better way to translate it, but that doesn't really connect with anybody because what does that mean? But here's what that word means. Here's what porneia means. It, it is any form of sexual activity that, that happens outside of marriage. That's what that word means. Any form of sexual activity, any form of it that takes place outside of marriage. And, and so if you think about it, that, that means two things. First thing that means is that sex is more than just penetration. If you think, uh, I can do everything except have actual penetration, then I'm not having sex, great. I mean, if that's what you think, that, that's delusional. That's crazy. Sex is so much broader than just that. But the second thing that that means is that sex is intended for marriage. That is the context with which God has designed this thing to function in. Now, I know, if you are someone who doesn't consider yourself a Christian tonight, I know that that sounds unbelievably oppressive and prudish for Christians to ha have this position, only have sex in marriage. I, I get that. I understand that. But what I want you to see, and what I want to try to show you, is that God, God is not up there saying, oh, I'm so strict and I enjoy kind of making you miserable. I want you to have a terrible sex life. And then it sort of has this maniacal after, afterward. <laughs> I mean, I really want, I want to show you that this is God's design to protect you and to ensure that you have an amazing sex life. This is his design. He's not trying to, you know, damper your sex life, but to actually give you a good one. There's a, um, 
a famous episode from the third season of Friends um, that many of y'all probably have seen, where Monica and Richard, who is the Tom Selleck character, you know, I think he was her her dad's friend, and she started dating his older man. They start hooking up and sort of having this relationship with each other, and um, they're at this point in their relationship when they realize um, uh, we want to keep doing this, but we don't want to be like official. I don't know, they didn't have Facebook back then. So they, they, were, they would say today, we don't want to be Facebook official, but it's still nice to have sex with each other. And so he, here's how the script reads. Monica says, they're on the phone, she's, she's alone in her apartment, they're on the phone, and she says, yeah, I do think it's better this way, that, that we just be friends. And he goes, yeah, we're being smart. And she goes, yeah, I'm sure. And uh, he actually then just kind of comes through the door, and he's on the phone, and he says, are you sure? And so she's, she goes, okay, I'll call you right back. And so she hangs up. And so now they're here face-to-face, and so she wants to clarify with him. And so she goes, uh, I mean, so we can be friends who just sleep together, right? And he gives the famous line, and he goes, absolutely. This will be just something we do, like racquetball. <laughs> and she goes, that sounds smart and healthy to me. And then she goes, um, so just out of curiosity, uh, do you have any other racquetball buddies? <laughs> And I think that that line is so unbelievably brilliant because what they're wanting to do is they want to say on the one hand, sex is just going to be this thing we do. It's just like racquetball. It's just this enjoyable thing that we get to do with each other like buddies. And yet they can't avoid this impulse that keeps, that, that's coming up that says, I don't want you doing this with someone else. That, I think that impulse is right. That impulse is coming from this place of when I give myself to you, I want this to be an exclusive thing. I don't want this happening in other contexts. And the Bible's position is basically saying that instinct is right. It is affirming that. And saying marriage, it really is the context where you can enjoy this this deeper reality of complete oneness, of being completely vulnerable, of, 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 of sharing everything with that person, uniting yourself to that person in every single way with your finances, with your possessions, with your emotional life, with your future, with your body, with everything. That all of me is yours. And this is the context with which this happens. And so you know, you know what this is like when you have sex with someone and you've been that vulnerable and that naked before them and there's no guarantee that they will even respond to your texts the next day. You know how scary that feels, how off that feels, where, where you say, I just gave myself to this person. I can't be more intimate with another human being. And there's zero security that they will even talk to me tomorrow. You don't have to have the Bible tell you that something is off about that. Something is off about that. If you are experiencing a oneness with them physically and that oneness doesn't flow out into the rest of your life, something is off with that. And that's why the Bible's position is that this is supposed to take place in the context of marriage. I mean, if you think about it like two sheets of paper that are glued together, the glue is functioning as this thing that's binding these two things together. And as soon as you try to tear these two things apart, the paper's going to rip. It's going to rip once it's been glued together. And so marriage is, this, is God's design to say, I want y'all to be glued together and bound and united and to enjoy this beautiful thing called sex and not to be ripped apart. Because that's what's happening. Damage is being done when you unite yourself to someone and then you just pull apart and rip apart. So let's recap before we finish. We've looked at the value of sex, said that it is a good thing. 
We've looked at the power of sex. We said that it is unbelievably powerful and it's progressive. Uh, we've looked at the message of sex that says, all of me is yours forever. The context of sex, which is marriage. And here's the fifth and last thing, and I'll be brief on this, is the story of sex. The story of sex. When the early church uh, in the first century read the book Song of Songs, uh, they wanted to interpret it allegorically, meaning that they said, I don't think this is really about a husband and a wife. I think this is more about Jesus and his bride, the church. And so what what they were trying to do is basically say, let's downplay all the raw, sexual, explicit stuff in there and just sort of spiritualize it and uh, pay no attention to the original context in which it was written and uh, just sort of downplay that and sort of spiritualize it. That's bad. But, on the other hand, I think that that instinct is actually right because the whole Bible is about Jesus. And so what is this story of the Song of Songs? How does that connect with who Jesus is? Well, Ephesians 5 tells you that marriage and sex is really the paradigm of how Jesus loves the church. Sex is basically telling the story of how Jesus loves his bride. Now, this may freak you out, um, but sex is a symbolic reenactment of the way that Jesus loves you, the way that he loves his church, the way that he loves the bride, his bride. And so think about it like this. Sex is... It is a gift that is given to married couples uh, to be united to each other in a way that is completely vulnerable, completely intimate, completely sacrificial, and completely safe. Completely safe. The reason why you want to have sex, it, it is more than just hormones. I am convinced of this. It is more than just hormones. The reason that we want to have sex so bad is that we want to be deeply connected to another human being. To be that exposed, to be that naked before another person, to be that known by somebody, and to have that person then accept you, but to not only accept you, but to be enraptured by you, that is what we want. That is the deepest aspect of the core of our being of what we want, is to be that exposed and to be known and to be loved. And this is really why, for so many of us, we walk around with the kind of fear that we do. Because we think if someone really knew me, if if I was that exposed inside and out for who I really am, they would reject me, or they would label me, or they would shame me. They would be so shocked by what they would discover. So I've got got to put up the front. And so that's why we are so afraid in the way that we we live our lives, is we want this so badly, and yet we're so afraid of it. If you look at verse 20 of that 1 Corinthians passage, it says this. If you are someone who has responded to his grace, your body has been bought at a price. This is saying God wanted your body. God wanted you. And the price that he was willing to pay to get your body, to get you, was his son Jesus. This is the claim of the Bible, is that he wanted you so badly that he was willing to give up his own son in order to get you, in order to get me. And that tells you two things. That tells you on the one hand that he knows you. I mean, God's not naive. He's not ignorant. He's not a fool. He knows you inside and out. He knows about your and mine, uh, our sexual failure and our sexual guilt. He knows about our fantasies. He knows about our secrets. He knows about our shame. 
He knows about the abuse that we have endured in our past. He knows all of that. That's what this says on the one hand. But on the second, this says this. He still wants you. This says that he still wants you. He was willing to give up everything in order to get you. He was willing to pay the price in order to get you. That, that this is what is being offered. That he knows you this intimately and yet still accepts you and is still enraptured with you. And so if you think about this, sex within marriage is really this dramatic reenactment of the gospel story that takes place over and over and over. It is this retelling of the story. And so imagine being completely... Uh, imagine the security of being completely known. Uh, imagine the security of being completely naked and simultaneously unashamed. Uh, imagine uh, of being that known and simultaneously that loved and that cared for in the same moment. That is really what's being offered to you in the gospel of Jesus tonight. That is what is being offered to you right now. So the question I want to leave you with is, will you respond? Will you respond to the invitation? Let me pray. Father, I would ask um, that you would give us grace to come to you, to uh, embrace your Son that you have given up for us. Father, give us the eyes of faith that we would see and that we would know that at our core we are known, and and you do not shame us, you do not reject us, you you do not label us and cast us out, but you come running after us. Father, I pray that that would transform us, that that would heal us, that that would um, give us the motivation uh, to think about our own sexuality differently. Uh, I pray that you would do that in my heart and the hearts of these folks here tonight. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.